1: Hi, welcome to the Standard of Truth Podcast. I'm your host, Garrett
0: Dirkmont, and I'm joined by my friend, Richard Gladuke. Hello, Garrett. In the last podcast, we talked about the context surrounding Joseph Smith's decision to run for president. We we got up to the point where he had written letters to potential candidates on both sides, or both parties, the, the Whigs and the Democrats, and we, we have we started with John C. Calhoun? Yeah, we,
1: we provided a lot of
0: context. It was
1: it was very it, context heavy? Well,
0: yeah. but I think that this is important because you know this isn't in a vacuum, and there's a lot of things that are going on that are driving both Joseph Smith's decision to leave the yeah. country as well as his decision to run for president. Well,
1: that and all I offer is context. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, 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 I can only really provide context, context, context. That's the yeah. To, to things that you clearly don't even care about. Well, uh, yeah, I mean,
0: 19th yeah. century religious and political issues, which is... You, yeah, I mean... It's a good thing you're LDS. Yeah, well,
1: I mean, yeah. You mean it's a good thing I have a job or...
0: <laughs> All of it. All of those things, yeah. But,
1: well, I'm assuming that, that uh, um, there's a huge demand for people who want to talk about the context of 1844 presidential
0: elections. Well... The people that came back for part two are those people.
1: Well, some of them are already turning it off. So some of them, like it's just they've subscribed. It's in their feed. And okay. so it popped up and they're hurriedly
0: trying to mute it now. I got it. It's like when, when Apple put uh, that U2 record on it. Yeah, oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Everyone got the new U2 album. You know, like, but I don't want it. It doesn't matter if you don't You've, want, got it. You've got it. You've got it. Here it is. And so that's what I want. That's what I aspire this podcast to be. I I want us to get to the point where we are forcibly taking over devices and forcing people to listen to 19th century political intrigue and and calling it religion.
0: What a perfect transition to the other letters that Joseph <laughs> Smith receives back from the presidential potential candidate.
1: Well, so one of the letters that he wrote was to Martin Van Buren. So I told you he wrote all the letters basically the same. One of the letters he, di- he changed was obviously to Martin Van Buren, which was very similar. But he also added, to, uh, for instance, he said uh, – because with Martin Van Buren, he's not asking him – hey, what are you going to do theoretically if you were president and someone came and asked you to help them get their lands back that were stolen from them? He was literally president, and Joseph went and talked to him and asked him to help them get their lands back. And so when Joseph wrote him, uh, it was with a lot of venom. And and he said, um, he, he wrote, he put a postscript at the bottom, and, and he said, uh, that he was asking quote whether your views or feelings have changed since the subject matter on this communication was presented to you a- in your then official capacity at Washington in the year 41 and by you treated with coldness indifference neglect bordering on contempt wow but how do you really feel joseph wow yeah yeah so joseph does not anticipate a positive response from martin van buren because he's already talked to Martin Van Buren. And again, it, it's so hard to study the past from our our current view because we already know we already know what happens. I mean, that that's the whole reason why I think I became a historian, because it like allowed me to always be right. You know, I mean, if you want to be right about things, study, study history, because you know, you already know what's going to happen. But the people in history, they have no idea.
0: You've told me several times about experiences that you've had with students where you feel that they're judging historical figures unfairly. Could could you speak to that?
1: Well, I mean, just the the reality is, regardless of what the topic is, anyone who came before us, if you are looking to say they are not... As smart as me, or if they're talking doctrinally, they don't know as much of the gospel as I do. Well, then you're always going to be able to find it. I mean, a great example of this is uh, the the idea of Doctrine and Covenant Section 76 that we already talked about in in a previous uh, several previous podcasts that that hell as a Protestant formulation an eternal place, where people will burn in agony forever, doesn't exist. I haven't yet had a student or other member of the church ever come to me and say, I really need to talk to you. I just found out that we believe that basically everyone goes to heaven, and if that's true, then there's just no way I can maintain my testimony. But when that vision was received, it was so radical that people leave the church over it, people are excommunicated over it, Brigham Young struggles to accept it. Early, powerful members of the church leave the church over the fact that the vision is saying that after suffering, after this life, that suffering will have an end and essentially everyone outside of the sons of perdition are going to go to a place of happiness. That's very easy for a modern-day BYU student to say, well, those people are just idiots. I mean, why wouldn't they just be happy that there wasn't a hell that everyone burned in? And that's in part because they grew up in a world that first of all stressed the ideas of mercy and equality far more than anything in the 19th century even thought about it. In the 19th century, there was no question about whether or not there were differences in society. Though of course there were. They lived in a society in which slavery was legal and even if you were opposed to slavery, you understood why slavery existed. And, and so they they live in a world where all they've ever heard from the time they, they started reading about uh, about Jesus and reading the Bible and going to church is that hell exists and you're probably going there. That's every pastor. That's every theologian. That's every sermon they've ever heard. It's how they've read the Bible. And so for them, when they first hear the idea that Protestant eternal hell doesn't really exist, well, it it's really shocking. Now look, some people are overjoyed. Some people love it. But others are stunned. And they have faith crises over the fact that their worldview, which was almost everyone goes to hell, had suddenly been broken apart. A modern-day Latter-day Saint can do two things with that, in, that information. The most natural thing that we tend to do when we study the past is is to just slap ourselves on the back on how great we are, right? So in, in, you we, we hear that we're like, huh, Brigham Young struggle with the vision <laughs> you know and then start slapping yourself on the back and be like, I'm just like so much more faithful than Brigham Young was because I, I haven't ever like ever had my testimony hurt by the by TNC 76. I mean come on, Brigham, right? And that is very self-aggrandizing and it helps you feel really good about yourself. But it actually is is a faulty, uh, uh, it, it's a faulty aggrandizement. You are saying that you, as a person living right now, with the knowledge, education, understanding that you've always had, with the upbringing you've had, with uh, the revelations, the the two hundred more years of revelation that you've had, that you don't have a problem with that idea. Yeah, of course you don't. You've been taught about circles being the kingdoms since you were in primary. You probably had a lesson in nursery about it, honestly. And so when we very blithely say, I'm just stunned that anyone could have a problem with that, what we're really doing is we are aggrandizing ourselves, but not placing ourselves in the same situation as those people were in. And that's frankly, that's the hardest part about studying the past because it's very easy to be judgmental. If you're just using our current standards of intelligence or revelation or doctrine or morality, everyone who came before us in the past was less intelligent, less informed, less devoted, less moral, I mean, whatever that is. And frankly, the reality is, 100 years from now, your great-grandkids are going to be desperately trying to hide your Facebook posts and and tweets from other people because there will be things in them that in their culture and their world, they will see as unintelligent, uninformed, undevoted, and immoral. And you're thinking, no, not me. I'm, I'm not an immoral person. I know. And that's exactly how it was for people in the past. So, I'm not trying to say that there's a relativism in the sense that slavery isn't somehow evil. Slavery is evil, whether people realize it's evil or not. But there is a very big difference between living in a world that universally condemns racism and and, and slavery as, as evil and growing up in a world that is actually doing the exact opposite, where scientists are trying to claim falsely. Like, it's not even real science. I mean, using the word science next to it is giant air quotes to even begin with. But claiming scientifically that there are literal differences between the races. Or theologians claiming that God not only wills them to keep slavery, but it's actually God's will in the Bible commanding them to, to, to own slaves. Now, to us today in the 21st century, it's offensive and it should be. But if we're trying to understand why people thought they did uh, thought the way they did in the past, just pounding our chests about how we wouldn't have been the same person doesn't actually get us to that place. It makes us feel good and and that's what it does, but it doesn't describe things. I mean, a a great example of, of this kind of relativism, uh, and, and how it affects us when we look back on the past is Abraham Lincoln in, uh, uh, the the last week of his life, he gave an incredibly controversial speech. In fact, this speech, I have no doubt, will be used against Lincoln's legacy at some point, if it isn't already. Um, Lincoln makes a suggestion, and it is a very tentative suggestion. The war is coming to the end. Um, Several major Southern armies have already surrendered. Lincoln's already gone through and toured Richmond after its fall. This this cataclysm of blood and violence that the Civil War was is finally coming to this just grinding end. And Lincoln, in a public speech, attempts to suggest, and again, very tentatively, that maybe we can allow at least some of the more intelligent blacks or the black men who've served in our military, because at this point uh, tens of thousands of blacks have served in the Union Army, that maybe we can allow some of them to vote. Think about how incredibly racist that statement is in 21st century terms. Imagine a politician were to stand up in the Congress today and say, "I think we, you know, I, I'm okay with with black men and women voting. I mean, as long as like we do an IQ test first, let's check and see, let's let's check them and see if they're smart enough, but only blacks. We'll only check them. That's the most racist thing you can conceive of someone's, I mean, it's I guess there's more racist things, I guess, but that would be, Utterly offensive to anyone that wasn't wearing a Grand Klegels uniform from a Ku Klux Klan. It is even it, then they're like, "Well, even that's, then they're, they're like, let's, let's dial it back." No, I mean, yeah, it, it it it's it's ridiculously offensive. So I have two things I can do with that speech. I can say, "Wow, I didn't know how much I hated Abraham Lincoln." <laughs> I didn't know what a horrible person he was. That he would make a suggestion that only intelligent uh, black men—not uh, men, men and women—only men. Women aren't allowed to vote at all. That's a whole other story, actually, um, which we'll get to. When we get to Utah eventually. We'll talk about uh, women's suffrage, um, but it, that that reaction—you can be very, you know, sanctimonious, and and you know. By, by the standards of our day, that is absolutely a, a racist statement to make. And it is a great tragedy that racism is so prevalent in American society in the 19th century that black men and women are suffering incredibly so. And not just as slaves. They are suffering indignation and, and, and ill treatment in the North in so-called free places and equitable places. That is absolutely the case. But one of the people in that audience listening to Lincoln make this statement, which we today would see as utterly nefarious, reprehensible. One of the people in that audience is is John Wilkes Booth, who will write something to the effect in his journal after hearing it because he's so offended at the idea of even considering extending the franchise to black men that he writes that will is the last speech that man will ever give and kills him a few days later. So the, the, the point isn't to try to say that when someone's being racist in the past, they aren't being racist. Absolutely they are. And that's the reason why culture and time needs to change. But there's a really big difference between someone who has the light, knowledge, and education that we have today Making statements that a racist from the 1850s would make, there's a real problem with that, because you're you're jettisoning your your 150 years of of education, and 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 taking someone in their own context of their own time. At any rate, I think that's important to understand as you study the past. Again. We should not use that to excuse the immoralities of the past. Um, the The reality of of the brutality of of slavery and and bigotry is is the case. And and those men and women who suffered through it, they suffered through it. And we shouldn't try to make the suffering okay. I mean, look, you can take this both ways, right? I mean, I was. Uh, with someone last year where there was a conversation about uh, slavery that was going on. And this is just, you know, not a, not a colleague or a scholar, just a, a lay person. And in an attempt to try to justify some of the violence that's been perpetrated upon, upon black Americans through history, this person said something to the effect of, well, I mean, you know, that, that black blacks owned other slaves as blacks in the United States too. And and so I mean I don't even, I don't even know why we're still talking about slavery and, and reparations and things like that. And I, I look, I understood what she was trying to say, and she had clearly had someone tell her that as a way of diffusing the very real uh, crimes committed against uh, against uh, Black Americans in the in the the history of our country. And yes, there are a few circumstances of. Black slaveholders in the United States. But trying to conflate the ownership of millions of people with the idiosyncratic and incredibly isolated places where there was less prejudice against Black Americans is just, that's not good history either. Right. So I think it's important to try to try to understand the past in its own, in its own context in its own format. At any rate, let's, let's get back to one of the letters that Joseph wrote to Louis Cass. We talked about him as being one of the, he was the one who was the secretary of war who implemented the Indian removal act. Uh, so he's, he's probably not going to be one of your favorite people from history either. And he's not one of mine. Um, and, uh, he is going to actually give a fairly lengthy response to Joseph. It's much longer um, than um, it, it's much longer than Calhoun's, and I think in part because Cass is he. I think Cass still wants to try to keep the Mormons a little closer. I think Calhoun is well aware that because he talked to Joseph before, that he ain't going to win any Mormon votes. So I, I, don't, I feel like he feels like he's most concerned with, I can't have any Southerners thinking that I back your cause. So I'm going to have this out publicly. You want to publish the letter I sent to you? Here it is. I don't support you, right? With Cass, though, because he's from the North and more of his support comes from Northern Democrats, like the Mormons are, I think he's a little bit more hesitant to uh, drop the hammer, so to speak. Sir, this is Lewis Cass. I received not long since your letter of the fifth, in which after referring to the difficulties which the people called Mormonites, he uses a term that Joseph doesn't use, have experienced, you asked me what would be my rule of action towards them as a people should I fortune favor my ascension to the chief magistrate. The contingency to which you refer is one that I have never sought and never shall seek to attain nor will the prospect of it whether near or remote have the slightest influence on my opi- feelings or opinions and without any affection of humility i may truly say that when i look to to uh, to the able men whose names are now before the country in connection with that high office i cannot but think that the selection will fall upon one of them rather than upon me now Cass was laying it on pretty thick. It's important to understand that in in the early republic, one of the ideals of the founders, especially people like George Washington, was that seeking a political office was in and of itself an act of lack of virtue. Who wants to be in office? The people who... Who don't have the right moral virtue to be in office? They obviously want power, and so there's still this kind of holdover. Even though, look, I mean, Andrew Jackson—he's more than willing to campaign, you know—but there is still a feeling of hesitancy. I mean, you probably learned, Richard, in your uh, extensive studies of failed vice presidential election slogans, yes, that prior to the 1840s, there really aren't very many of them electioneering, you know, the way that we know it, slogans, politicians going out and actually speaking for themselves was just coming into its own in the late 1830s and 1840s. Prior to that, it was always surrogates who had to talk for you. It had to be like, you know, I know he won't accept it because he's such a good man, but Richard LaDuke should be sanitation commissioner of Layton, Utah. That guy knows how to shovel more trash than anyone. I mean, like the, the 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 reason why is that if Richard were to say to himself, "Hey, I know my way around a trash can," that would be a demonstration of a lack of pure virtue. Now, clearly, it's not something. I mean, you'll still get it a little bit from politicians today. A little bit of like, "I never sought this office; it was the people's will." No, you like literally had to fill out forms in order to, yeah, yeah. Someone claiming like that they never sought the office is, they can't be saying 100% the truth because we don't force anyone to serve against their will in the United States. You have to fill out forms. You have to apply. You have to run. Often there's a primary. You have to go out. You have to electioneer. You have to ask for people's votes. And you very well might be feeling that you're going to represent the people the best. You really might have the best interest at heart. But it's a very different campaigning thing than it was then. And so you can see Lewis Cass here. I mean, the great irony of this is Lewis Cass is not even being honest to Joseph Smith. He has every intention of running. His name is being bandied about all over the country. The re- Joseph didn't just throw darts at a board and say, who are some Democrats I could write to? I mean, he he is looking, he's reading the national newspapers, hearing what the Prominent Democrats around him are saying about who's going to run and saying, okay, these are the most likely candidates. Louis Cass, the most prominent Northern Democrat outside of Martin Van Buren, the former president, you know, uh, uh, uh Richard Johnson, former vice president and, and kind of a, I you know an upper South Democrats so with pro-slavery, but upper South John C Calhoun, leader of the Southern Democrats. I mean, Joseph is, is, is asking him for a reason and, and Cass, I I already said in our last podcast, he's actually going to be the front runner on the first nine ballots of the convention. So his, his faux humility there in claiming that he would never actually seek I mean, he says, you know, I will not seek, I shall never seek to attain that office except for when he did, which was almost immediately after he wrote this letter. Um, after his faux humility, he continues, quote, Still ordinary civility requires that I should answer you, and I do so with the less hesitation, as your question involves neither doubt nor difficulty. Can you tell Lewis Cass is a pretty proud of himself lawyer? I think then that the Mormonites should be treated as all other persons are treated in the country. Oh, well, that sounds nice. That they should be protected in their rights and punished when they violate laws. Our Constitution recognizes no system of religion either as a test for public office or as a condition for private protection, and all whatever may be their uh, faith and all whatever may be their faith or worship are equal before the law. In thus stating great general principles, I have stated what would be my rule of action as a magistrate or a citizen. Should any case arise requiring my decision farther than this, I can make no declaration. Of the facts to which you refer, I have but vague knowledge, having been absent from the country during the period of your occurrence. That's true, he was the minister to France during the time period of the Missouri difficulties, but he would have to be living with his head inside of you know, a, a French bakery uh, in order to not hear about the, the violence perpetrated against the Mormons in Missouri because it was everywhere uh, in the papers. So he, he knows, but of course is using that as, as a kind of a screen. Um, I am bound, however, and here's the kicker. I am bound, however, in candor to add that if your application for redress to which you consider yourselves entitled has been, as you say, Rejected by the constituted authorities of the state of Missouri and by Congress, I do not see what power the President of the United States could have over the matter or how he could interfere with it. Very respectfully, I am your obedient servant, Lewis Cass. So, so you'll notice that Lewis Cass says a couple things. He, first of all, attempts to distance himself from the question a great deal. I mean, like any you know good White House press secretary, he's not answering the question that's being asked. He puts out some generalities. Well, I, you know, you ask what I would do if I was president. I mean, what I would do if I was president is the same thing I would do if I was a private citizen because I won't change my views because I'm virtuous. You know, express some general sympathy like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry to see that Mormons aren't treated the way that they should be treated. But then when he gets right down to it at the very end, the part that really matters is the power of the presidency doesn't have the power to do anything about it.
0: This is the man that, speaking as the person that was responsible for following through on Andrew Jackson's order to drive...
1: Yeah, his unconstitutional order that the Supreme Court of the United States declared to be unconstitutional and ordered him to not do... That he just did anyway. So
0: this is something that we've talked about in previous podcasts. This idea of, well, perhaps these candidates didn't actually think that this was the, the place of the president or the executive branch to do anything. But the people that you've talked about, John C. Calhoun and also here, these are people that were very involved in these. Not, not just yeah. aware of this, but involved in.
1: Yeah, this, I mean, I mean. So let me get this straight. The president doesn't have the power to help American citizens redress their grievances when their lands are stolen from them by the state militia of Missouri. The American president can't intervene when a state decides with impunity to simply murder its citizens and steal their belongings. But that same president, who has no power to intervene in Missouri absolutely has the power to intervene in Georgia and in Florida and in Mississippi and force, at the point of a gun, tens of thousands of American Indians to be forcibly relocated to other lands, violating a Senate treaty. But tell me all about the rule of law and the limited nature of the presidential powers. I think people run to the limited nature of presidential power when it suits them. Yeah, and it certainly suits them at this point. But is that, is that, is there an actual bar to their action on it? In fact, as president, one of the easiest things you could do is simply contact the Missouri governor and say, this is a real problem, and I'm going to give you time to figure it out. But if you can't figure it out, I'm going to have to start doing things to figure it out. That alone. Is enough to cause Missouri to start trying to figure it out, but that's not very politically savvy because everyone hates Mormons. So, um, that that you know kind of bo- you know keeps that from happening. Now, those democratic responses. He doesn't get a response from uh, from former President Van Buren, surprisingly. Um, uh, the, there's a reason why Van Buren's kind of a hiss and a byword uh, among uh, Latter-day Saints well into the the later uh, Utah period. I mean, even today, I guess. I mean, I, we don't know very many presidents from the 19th century, but if you know one that you don't like, Martin Van Buren's one of them. <laughs> Him and James Buchanan. But their responses, I think, were frustrating to Joseph, but not not unexpected. Joseph clearly knew that John C. Calhoun was not in favor of helping them because John C. Calhoun had already had a conversation with Joseph and said, I'm not willing to help you. But when he gets his letter back from Henry Clay, I think that one's devastating. I think it's devastating because Joseph had gone on record saying that he supported Clay. He felt like he could trust Clay, that if anyone was going to to help them in their in their 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 difficulties, it would be Clay, and and you know, frankly, I'm sure Joseph thought that their willingness to pledge support for Clay would would actually cause the Whigs to to really take up the Mormon cause. You see this locally in Illinois. You see newspapers that have been attacking Mormons incessantly from the time they came into the state. Whig newspapers like the Quincy Whig. You see them when joseph comes out in favor of henry clay almost immediately begin to backtrack and you know joseph smith making a wise decision uh, with his people as he yeah uh, you know. uh, again hard to believe that that you would either hate or love someone solely on the basis of what political party they follow or what candidate they intend to vote for but in this world of the 19th century, you see this all the time. And I mean it is stark. It is one week attacking Mormons as terrible inhabitants, and we got to get them out of the state. And a week later, well, the Mormons are wise in wanting to follow Henry Clay. Because Illinois was a very it was a very hotly divided state. And and that meant that the Whig chances of winning the state if all the Mormons voted for Henry Clay. Actually, became quite close in the actual election when the election actually happened. You know, Illinois is decided by by fewer than five thousand votes. I mean, it is not a blowout election, and you've got twenty thousand plus Latter Day Saints living in Illinois, and so th- this really could tip the balance. And I think that Joseph well understands that, and is hopeful that that reality is going to sway some political thought. This is Henry Clay's response. Dear Sir, this is a longer response, by the way. I have received your letter in behalf of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints stating that you understand that I am a candidate for the presidency and inquiring what my rule of action would be relative to you as a people should I be elected. I am profoundly grateful for the numerous and strong expressions of the people in my behalf as a candidate of the President of the United States, but I do not so consider myself that must depend on future events. Again, this kind of faux humility, of faux virtue. Everyone knows not only does Henry Clay want to be president, he's already run for president multiple times. So, so the idea that he that you like, well, I would never consider myself a candidate for president except for the other times that you ran? Yes. Um, uh, but I do not consider myself, that must depend on future events and upon my sense of duty. Should I be a candidate? I can enter into no engagements or make no promises, give no pledges to any particular portion of people of the United States. If I ever enter that high office, I must go into it free and unfettered, with no guarantees but such as can be drawn from my whole life, character, and conduct. It is not inconsistent with this declaration to say that I have viewed with a lively interest the progress of the Latter-day Saints, that I've sympathized in their sufferings and their injustice, as it appeared to me, what has been inflicted upon them, and that I and that I think in common with all religious communities, they ought to enjoy the security and protection of the Constitution and laws. It's a little more flowery, but it's basically the same as Lewis Cass, and it's certainly the same in action as John C. Calhoun. Oh, yeah, that I feel bad that things happened to you. Would I do anything to stop that? No, no, I wouldn't. And, and the platitudes aren't helping anyone. The platitudes don't put food on the table for these Latter-day Saint refugees in Nauvoo. The platitudes don't bring back someone's murdered child from Hans Mill. The platitudes don't actually fix anything. Just saying, yeah, I feel really bad about that. I mean, I guess that's better than saying I'm really happy it happened. But in either case, you're not doing anything to fix it. And so Joseph is going to respond angrily. Um, and uh, those those letters are also, um, I'll, I'll read part of them so you get an idea, but they're very lengthy, so I'm not going to read all of them. But let's start with uh, his return response to John C. Calhoun. Now, these are letters signed um, under Joseph Smith's name, uh, but they're they're likely drafted by um, W. W. Phelps or or others that are um, listening to what Joseph has to say and then drafting the letter for him. That's how a lot of Joseph's writing is done at this time. So when I say it's a letter from Joseph Smith, it's certainly something Joseph reads and he approves and 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 puts his signature to. But he's not the one most likely drafting it, and so. This is a pretty acerbic letter. I mean, uh, Joseph is angry. Now listen, you got to remember what Joseph, where he's coming from. He has thousands of people who he knows from firsthand witness and experience have been brutalized and robbed by one of the states of the United States with no legal recourse or remuneration ever having taken place. So when he hears John C. Calhoun very dryly and say, well, I already told you there's nothing that the United States can do, it's going to elicit a response that is quite biting. So I don't know if Joseph actually wrote these words or whether Phelps or someone else wrote them for him and then Joseph signed off on them, much like you know, presidents have speech writers today. So I mean, that's not a shocking thing you know that that in the end joseph signing off on them even if he doesn't come up with the the response himself sir your reply to my last letter concerning your role of action towards latter day saint's elected president is at hand and that you and your friends of the same opinion relative to the matter in question may not be disappointed as to me or my mind upon so grave a subject Permit me, as a law-abiding man, as a well-wisher to the perpetuity of constitutional rights and liberty, as a friend of the free worship of Almighty God, by all according to the dictates of every person's conscience, to say, I am surprised, in his underline that a man or men in the highest stations of public life should have made up such a fragile view, quote unquote, of the case than which there is not on the face of the globe fraught with so much consequence to the happiness of men in this world or the world to come. To be sure, the first paragraph of your letter appears very complacent and fair on a white sheet of paper, and who that is ambitious for greatness and power would have not said the same thing your ambitiousness for greatness and power would not have said uh, sorry your uh, oath would bind you to support the constitution and laws and all creeds and religions are alike tolerated they must of course all be justified or condemned according to merit and demerit but why tell me why are all the principal men held up for public stations so cautiously careful not to publish to the world that they will judge a righteous judgment, law or no law? For laws and opinions like the veins and steeples change with the wind. One Congress passes a law and another repeals it. One, statement says, one statesman says that the Constitution means this and another says that. Who does not who does not know that all may be wrong? The opinion and pledge, therefore, in the first paragraph of your reply to my question, like the forced steam from an engine of a steamboat, makes the show of a bright cloud at first, but when it comes in contact with the pure atmosphere, it dissolves to common air again. That's a pretty good nineteenth-century put-down, I think. Yeah, See, it looked like it was a real cloud, but it was fake. Yeah, that was your first paragraph. Your second paragraph leaves you naked before yourself like a likeness in a mirror when you say that according to your view, the federal government is one of limited and specific powers, has no jurisdiction in the case of the Mormons. So then a state can at any time expel any portion of her citizens with impunity and in the language of Martin Van Buren, frost it over with your gracious view of the case, though the cause is never so just. Government can do nothing because it has no power, quote-unquote. Go on then, Missouri, after another set of inhabitants, as the Latter-day Saints did have entered some two or three thousand dollars worth of land and made large improvements thereon. Go on then say, I banish the occupants and owners and kill them as the mobbers did many Latter day Saints and take their lands and property as spoil and let the legislature, in the case of the more, as in the case of the Mormons, appropriate a couple hundred thousand dollars to pay the mob for doing the job for the renowned senator from South Carolina, Mr. John C. Calhoun. Says the powers of the federal government are so specific and limited that it has no jurisdiction in the case. O oh, ye people who groan under the oppression of tyrants, ye exiled Poles who have felt the iron hand of Russian grasp, ye poor and unfortunate among all the nations. Come to the asylum of the oppressed. Buy ye lands of the general government. Pay in your money to the treasury to strengthen the army and the navy and worship God according to the dictates of your own consciences. Pay in your taxes to support the great heads of a glorious nation. But remember, a sovereign state is so much more powerful than the United States. The parent government, that it can exile you at pleasure, mob you with impunity, confiscate your lands and property, have the legislature sanction it, yea, even murder you as an edict of an emperor. And it does no wrong, for the noble senator of South Carolina says that the power of the federal government is so limited and specific that it has no jurisdiction. Wow. Yeah, that's... How does he really feel, though?
0: Wow. Wow. I, yeah, wow.
1: I mean, it's it's a very well put point, right? That if you're saying the federal government doesn't have the ability to prevent a state from murdering its own citizens, then what you're saying is a state ha- can do whatever it wants to an American citizen. And is more powerful than the federal it, government. It can steal its lands. It can steal its property. It can murder and assault its citizens. And you say things, well, no, only if there's a legal basis. You don't need a legal basis. The legal basis, like the emperor you know, conquering the Poles, is, I want to. And as he makes a point of it, because the people murdering the Mormons and stealing their lands are members of the state militia of Missouri. They were paid by the state. They actually get paid for the murders and assaults that they conduct. Wow. So they not only aren't charged for murdering a 10-year-old boy by putting a gun to his head and saying, nits make lice if I let him live. He'll just become another GD Mormon. He's paid for it. Here's your pay for your time in the service to your state as you murdered a 10-year-old. So part of the reason why there's so much passion in what's being written here is this is not a theoretical discussion. This isn't a question about whether or not the tariff is going to maybe impact us the way we think it might. Joseph personally knows people who were murdered in Missouri. Joseph personally knows thousands of people who lost their belongings and had their homes burned down and had their land stolen in Missouri. Joseph personally knows women who were sexually assaulted in Missouri by the state militia. It's not an academic discussion about whether or not those things are wrong. And John C. Calhoun has attempted to take the, well, I couldn't possibly say anything about that. At one point, Abraham Lincoln in the great debates over slavery will say, if slavery isn't wrong, then nothing is wrong. I agree. Uh, if murdering and plundering, and driving out at terroristic force, an entire group of people on the sole basis of what religion they belong to. If that isn't wrong, then we don't even have a basis for having a society. We're not talking about the accusations that some Mormon men committed crimes. If they committed crimes, then throw them in jail. But you think Amanda Barnes-Smith committed a horrendous crime that would cause her husband to be murdered, her son to be murdered, her other son to be wounded, her property to be stolen from her, and to be terrorized, driven with people threatening to kill her every day as she's driven from Missouri to Illinois. That, that, that's justified? The very fact that people attempt to make an apology for the brutal murders and assaults that take place against the Latter-day Saints. Whether they are John C. Calhoun in 1844 or 43, or whether they are someone today is actually sickening to me. It doesn't matter if there were some Latter-day Saints who said and did things that they probably shouldn't have said or did that 10-year-old boy and that 6-year-old boy didn't do any of those things. Violence, when it comes to uh, ethnic violence, when it comes to political violence, religious violence, is you know, violence is always horrific. But when violence is employed on the basis of a group, when we no longer decide that what someone actually does will determine whether or not they are acceptable to society but whether or not they are affiliated with someone in some way and we pass a sentence of death against them whether they're a child or 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 a woman or 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 an adult or an elderly it doesn't matter it doesn't matter they're affiliated with this hated group and therefore a death sentence for them that as far as Joseph's concerned, as far as I'm concerned, is an abrogation of the entire point of society. So you can sit in nice, you know, cultured halls of Congress and smoke your fat cigars and feel like you're just doing the will of the people while you are complicit in the murder of people. Not, not their trial, their, their 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 judgment rendered against them and them being executed, which is already going to be, you know, a show trial. But instead, their wholesale slaughter, uh, which is, frankly, exactly what is about to happen to Joseph Smith only in a few short months. The depths to which the government will refuse to protect a hated minority group will be manifest in Joseph Smith's murder. As we try to find a way to apply this to ourselves as we're thinking about the day, I think, I think that's one of the ways to, to reflect on your own uh, commitment to the Savior and his willingness to help others, even if they were from a degraded class. Even if they were people that were thrown out of society, even if they were people that that made it appear that he was a sinner because he affiliated with, I think one of the things that should come out of our experience as Latter-day Saints, as Joseph's experience as a Latter-day Saint, of the refusal of those in power to protect those that are weaker, is that a Latter-day Saint should be very keen on aiding those who are suffering. And especially when it is a group that there are very few friends for. That sometimes places Latter-day Saints in uncomfortable situations where they're advocating for the rights and protections of refugees when many other people are not. When they are repudiating the ideas of of deportations because the church has a policy on not separating families those are sometimes difficult things because they come in contact with some people's already existing political beliefs but you can feel the passion in joseph smith's letter as he writes back the purpose of this life is for us to reflect and to grow closer to to Jesus Christ. The expression of that love isn't simply limited to those that are within our friend circle or our family. And Joseph feels very deeply for the people that he knows that suffered. So what we're going to talk about next time is we're going to talk about how Joseph responds to these great disappointments, how he responds to the fact that these politicians are now all on record saying, yep, the state of Missouri can murder you and that's none of my business. What is he going to do? There's no one else left to write to. You have both political parties that have both rejected not just helping them in the moment. Both political parties, all of their leaders have said, even if I was in power, I would never help you. Well, that's a pretty isolating place to be. There's nowhere to go. There's no one to talk to. There isn't a resolution that you can perceive. What do you do when there doesn't appear to be any resolution? And that's what Joseph's going to do next in this odyssey of his political um. his his plans to run for president.
0: Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.